Welcome to Cube and Chaos. Spend some time with us, enjoying old cars and new, whether they are weak or powerful. Right. Hey everyone, this is Max. This is Jacob. We're here once again to talk to you about Cube and Chaos. With a bit more of a focus on Cube this time, as Chaos Draft was not available on Magic Online. Unfortunately, but this time we'll even be talking about our own cubes a little bit, which should be exciting, yeah. So currently still online, I don't know if you're hearing this in time to participate, is Amas Peasant Cube. I really enjoyed that one. So Peasant Cube is uh, a restriction on the rarity while creating the cube. So it means there are only commons and uncommons included in this, in this format. Even though it's strictly commons and uncommons, you have a lot of cards that really are kind of absurd to see print at a uncommon, like Demonic Tutor, that kind of thing. So it's a little looser than you might expect. Yeah. There's certainly some power there. Um, something you might hear if you're going around in uh, Magic Arena circles is uh, some people call this an artisan cube. Um, this both are names for formats with only commons and uncommons. And like when many, many years ago, originally the peasant format was created, it only allowed for a certain number of uncommons. But in cube terms, both are pretty much equivalent. I don't know anybody making a distinction there. Not but person. Sounds a lot nicer, doesn't it? Uh, I don't know. I, uh... Rather be a peasant or an artisan? Yeah, I don't know if I would rather be a peasant or an artisan. <laughs> okay, moving on. Yeah, so a thing about the Amazus cube is, first thing you notice, it's a quite big cube with uh, 600 cards in it. And that means that not every card will be showing up. Like, we haven't talked about cube sizes before, but I believe most common is... Um, something between 450 and 550, at least yeah. from what I heard. Yeah, I know um, 260 for eight players normally, at least, is the um, minimum. And then you have five, uh, 540 as kind of the larger end and 450 as kind of the medium. Yeah, and over 540, is it's rather rare. But yeah, Amas mm -hmm. chose to have 600 cards in there. and. He also wrote a nice Reddit post about his um, design ideas about this cube and with some hints to players as well. And I did enjoy this, um, reading this, his ideas about that. Sadly, he came out a little bit uh, after the cube went online. Maybe that was his plan to let people explore by themselves first, but uh, I, was, I was a bit afraid he wouldn't write something like this. Yeah, I was a little disappointed when um, Wizards released the Spotlight article about his cube, and there was no actual article from Amaz, just the cube list. Yeah, that was a bit disappointing. I don't know how that came about, but anyway, we got it, got it late, but we still got it. And yeah, is there something you especially want to talk about with this cube, something you noticed? Yeah, so... One of the things I wanted to talk about is actually um, it's a relatively large cube, and I think you've also pointed out um, 
during this podcast that a lot of the different effects in the cube are supposed to be unique. And I noticed that too, um, with the exception maybe of some mana dorks, which are basically functional reprints of each other. But um, Well, but there aren't many of them either. Like it's two Lanua elf types and right. uh, Everson's Pilgrim, and that's it yeah. in the one mana slot. Right, that's true. Um, and I will say that as someone who is a big fan of a variety of experiences, like that's one of the reasons I like Chaos Draft so much. I'm a big fan of this. Um, I was talking to someone yesterday uh, who said that this format does a decent impression of Chaos Draft. And that's not really how I had thought about it. But I do think that when you have a cube that's a little larger than normal and you have every card doing something different, you do get um, a real mix of experiences, which is something I enjoyed. Yeah, I, I did enjoy this too. Um, and we will talk about that later. Uh, that is something that we enjoy. And um, if you contrast this cube with Caltic uh, Cube, which we had talked about in the last episode and also was available earlier on Magic the Gathering Online, there, the design ideas are contrasting very much because um, he's, in his um, Cube Spotlight article, he wrote that um, uh, if he, he favors uh, broadly interchangeable effects that can be parsed easily even when one is not familiar with specific cards over uh, instantly win combos. Um, I was quoting a short part there. And mm -hmm. what it means is there's just a bunch of two mana, three damage burn spells, and a lot of one mana, two one beaters in white, and also black and uh, in red, also. Right, so, yeah. This makes very different environments, I feel like, both of which can be enjoyable but they feel very different. Yeah, I think they feel very different too. Um, I think it's actually kind of funny because as um, limited players, we talk about variance and about how we like to reduce variance um, because, you know, those moments when we're losing to cards like Dream Trawler really <laughs> can be frustrating when you're sitting on the receiving end, there's nothing you can do about it, but it's, yeah. Funny to think that, you know, a 600-card cube where as many effects as possible are supposed to be different, there's actually greater variance in that, um, even without, you know, rares and mythics, than there would be in a cube like the cultic cube. Yeah, but it also takes, like, a special skill then to find your way through the draft. And uh, I feel like this is complexity that gets introduced by this type of cube design that... Um, you are not looking for the specific number um, to get the numbers correctly, like in card cube, for your good curve that you need to be competitive with this deck. But instead, you are looking for, is this effect better or is the other effect better? And I might not wield this, and I will not see a, a replacement for it. That is putting a very different strain on you, and it felt very refreshing to me. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and going back to the variance note, I will just say that 
Um, the first kind of variance I was referring to, I would call like in-game variance. I would call this more like in-draft variance, um, where yeah, you are forced to make those difficult decisions um, more regularly. And you can also much less plan your drafts out. With a 600 card cube with effects being like singleton, like really singleton, you can't plan on drafting like a special archetype that requires a certain card. Like, for example, there were the Haunten in there, and they're not even that good, but you can't know how many of them will be opened. Um, I did still draft them, and it's fun to draft them, but you can't rely on it. And right, exactly. Just picking a card for a synergy with another card you know that is in the format can just go wrong. And that, I think, has some potential for frustration. Um, but on the other hand, it also evens out the playing field again a little bit. So that not the person knowing the cube will exactly know what to wait for and what will be open and probably table because it's so narrow or something like that. That's something that I felt like was also kind of nice for this big um, audience that this cube on Magic Online obviously will reach. Yeah, I think the Honden um, deck is a really interesting example because you could be in a spot where you're doing something like first picking the white Honden, and then suddenly you don't see any other Hondens the entire draft. Um, you have this repeatable life gain card that is unplayable. And uh, I think that Hondens, in terms of power level, they would make a lot more sense in, in the cube where every card is seen. And as it is, I think it's kind of an interesting choice, albeit a fun one. I don't think we see the Hondens enough. Um, I think that it almost, uh, this part I will say, kind of reminds me of Chaos Draft, where just banking on getting some synergy if you take a Honden and you really have no idea whether or not you're going to get there. Yeah, it's um, a bit of a gamble, but I do like the inclusion. It's just, um, you could criticize it, but... I will not, and because I did enjoy it. Right. Yeah, makes sense. I will say, um, so just on the topic of synergy, I noticed that uh, throughout each color pair, there really was a ton of synergy going on, um, from like the green-black graveyard interactions to the blue-white blink deck. Um, each color pair definitely had a pretty clear role, which I think is pretty cool that Amaz was able to do that. Um, without really repeating any effects. Yeah, I noticed that too. And I was a bit surprised by how well it still came together. And I think that's something that I, I, I will look into the numbers again later, because in one of my cubes, the themes are super loud. And in Amaz's cube, it didn't feel like that. And he didn't say that, like in this article, he said he didn't want to have very narrow strategies and um, specific decks, but cards that just play well together. And it still felt like these types of decks, like blue-red spells or something like that, did come together. So I was a bit surprised by that, but it felt very good. I was impressed. How was the general feel of the games that you played? 
know what the average person uh i think played a lot of grindier games where um cards like tidings and opportunity were key to getting ahead but i played a lot of games where um it seemed like my threats were trading for their removal or vice versa and games where i thought uh for instance in one spot i would be the controlling deck and then you know someone with more synergy might just have a ton of value and then suddenly i have to try to play some kind of tempo game plan yes i know ex i think i know what you mean there yeah i would say that the games felt very grindy to me like value engines and synergies were very important but i also want to say that cards like tidings and opportunity like card draw spells and blue in a non-tempo role felt very bad to me because uh, you had very good two-for-one stuff that directly impacts the board and that played very very well i feel like but um everything that just gained you raw card advantage was very hard to uh, get traction in the game with like you drew a bunch of cards and then you had some counter spells and the opponent already had a board and like somehow it just it was very hard for me to convert raw card advantage from hand to a good port board position so i had some problems with playing blue yeah i agree i think pretty much i was put in a lot of situations where i either had the option to try to draw cards and then i would take a bunch of damage for it or i would let my card advantage engines rot in my hand and I'll try to defend the board. Yeah. Yeah, so the cards that played very well for me were the type like Shriekmaw and Necrotal. Necrotal type creatures. Yeah, they played amazingly well. Just yeah. getting some board traction. They also had synergy with other cards. Um, they stopped opponent synergy because a lot was going on via creatures since Planeswalkers are not really a thing in Peasant Cube. So right. I did notice um two of the uh of course uncommon and hybrid uh planeswalkers from War of the Spark were here and I didn't actually think that they were going to be um really powerful and it didn't look like they were, which was nice. I uh, like for instance Kaya um card. Nice as it is, potential two for one exiling a couple creatures. Um I remember at least one match I drafted the card, I just left it in my sideboard because it just felt like it was too slow. It was nice to see an environment where um, Planeswalkers didn't feel overly powerful. Yeah, did you have a favorite deck that you want to talk about? I guess the deck that I enjoyed playing most was um, the first one I drafted. It was a blue-black um, range. It was kind of hedging toward control. Um, and pretty much the only reason I was able to win the first match with that deck is because I figured out partway through that I needed to change up the sideboard in a pretty dramatic way. Um, so I pretty much took out anything brutally because I realized my opponent had better synergy and better value, and I brought in cards like Sleep and Falconrath Aristocrat and Town. Yeah. That sounds fun. It's great when you can really make use of the sideboard in a creative way to get an edge in a otherwise bad matchup. 
That's great. That that's, that leads me to a thought that I had about the cube, and also something that um, I'm not sure if I like it in in cubes or not. And that is specific sideboard cards, like cards that you will never main deck, and only in some cases sideboard. For example, there was um, uh, an effect I don't quite recall the name. It's for a green. Phyrexian mana and X, it deals X damage to each creature of flying. And it's called Corrosive Gale. Ah, yes. And I was a bit surprised to see that. Um, especially since I don't feel like there was a specific flyer deck. Like there were some very strong token creators in uh, Migratory Root and. Battle uh, Screech. Battle Screech, yeah, and uh, Lingering Souls. So against mm. that, it's a decent sideboard option, I guess. But yeah, these type of effects, I don't know if I like it to include them in cube. Um, I mean, most cubes are so deep that if you have a few of these cards, picking them up with a late pay picks might be nice. But it also takes away from um, your place to support maybe minor archetypes or something like that. That could also have these spots that go very late to people and could uh, make the deck come together. And like I drafted cards like this, but I never sided them in. It just I never felt like these narrow cards are good enough in a matchup that I should play them. Yeah. I remember um I think in the last Peasant Cube actually we had on Magic Online um somewhere it said that the creator originally had a bunch of cards that were strictly for the sideboard and he ended up deciding against them, um, just deciding that they weren't contributing enough and, yeah, the slots could be better used in another way. And I feel like the best sideboard cards aren't the ones, uh, or I guess they're the ones that when you look at them, you don't think this is a sideboard card. They're the ones that barely don't make your deck, but they change your game plan in a pretty radical way. That is exactly what you were talking about earlier that's why i was remembering that and i think there is there's something to this philosophy like but for example i think decent uh sideboard cards could also be just creatures that are bigger than your deck normally wants but then in a special certain matchup they might come in and for you there are sideboard card in this instance but for another deck they might be the main deck card that they were still missing and if they were missing it, they would pick it up earlier than you, and it would be a nice card for them. And if you get it late, it might be a sideboard option. So I do like this type of sideboarding in cube building a little bit better. I agree. I think that when you devote slots to a sideboard card in particular, almost 100% of the time the card is going to wheel. Just that in and of itself seems like it makes for less interesting drafting, in my opinion. Yep. Because if you know the card is going to wheel, then your decision-making just got that much easier. Yeah, And I think the, the idea behind it is that, um, also in his design article, Amas said that he wants there to be an answer to everything. And while from a general idea, I do like this, but it's really with this corrosive gale, and token producers example. If your opponent has 
two of these amazing token producers in their deck and you side the card in and you have it in your hand and they don't draw the token producers. It just doesn't do anything at all. Or like if you draw it a little bit too late, then maybe you're already so far behind that this very specific answer will not get you back in the game. And it's kind of a silver bullet in that way. Yeah, you need it exactly in the right moment and like it feels a bit too narrow to have these type of of cards. But I think another one of these type of cards was the Kyle you talked about earlier. I think Anas really wanted there to be a way to remove the big hexproof finishers that he put put in the cube. And I think Kaya is doing that in a relatively elegant way. Because in the grindy matchup, this is also just a nice card, or maybe some decks that are black and or white and ramping a bit might just appreciate it by itself. And that is the way that I like sideboard cards to be in, in cube design. I think I'm going to agree with you on that one. Though I have a question for you. Um, what would you think if tacked on cycling to a card like Corrosive Gale? Um, I mean, it would make it much better. Uh, I think it would elevate it to being a nice inclusion. I really think that. Like, it's not not very elegant in a way, I think, but um, that would make me way more likely to play it in my deck, or not main deck, but side it in. It, it certainly makes it stronger. Right. And if it had something crazy like one mana cycling, then maybe it's not even embarrassing to main deck. Well, I think in most cubes it would still be a bit embarrassing to main deck. And but it depends on the deck then, because if you care then a little bit about uh, instances of sorceries in your graveyard or card types or something, then I think it becomes a main deck inclusion. Or maybe drawing a second card each turn yeah. or something. Yeah. All right. So my favorite favorite deck was just a mainly green um, five color deck with four Haunten. Um That never did anything for me. The Haunten just just never were in the position to to win the game for me. Um, it did go to one, though, and it most often just by casting drop the domains for either four, plus four plus four on everybody or plus five plus five on everybody. And that just felt so much fun. It's, I mean, it's probably not very fun if you're on the receiving end of that because, like, you are on, you gained a bunch of life, you're on 23, your opponent hasn't attacked a single time. You're tripping away with a flyer, and then all of a sudden you're dead. I don't know if that's the greatest game experience on the receiving end, but it was just so funny to me to just pop my stupid dogs by a lot. Um, yeah, I did enjoy that a lot. I don't know. Maybe I'm a bad person for it. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I would say if anyone's a bad person, it's a, a Moz for including Trump. No, I'm just <laughs> Yeah, but probably I, also not that. But I, I also saw it wheeled sometimes. Like people were not really respecting it because I think in the last sets with these override effects, they were not really good. And it is asking a bit of you. I agree with you. I think um, I remember if it was called like overwhelm or something. But the uh, plus two plus two uh, to everything in trample effects were just never 
were not very overwhelming. They were pretty underwhelming. And yes, they were not not good in even in normal limited. And this forward was much more much higher power level. It seems like wizards um, kind of learned their lesson by toning down the overrun effect, so the game doesn't just end in one turn. And um, we went back to a card that really does the opposite um, of showing that kind of design restraint. So yeah. So I also found a card in there that um, I will add to one of my cubes. It's the Sunset Pyramid. I remember it from its original set, and uh, it was already fun there. Um, it's just another small effect. It's an artifact for two colorless, and it comes into play with three brick counters on it. And for two mana and tap it, you can either remove a brick counter and draw a card, or not remove a brick counter and scry one. And I think that's a, just a cute synergy card, the type of cards I like. It might not have been the best card in the cube, but um, I think it plays nicely in a deck with some counter spells, the way that uh, the Ritual Fetter Foundry did in the last, that I talked about in the last episode. Um, but it's in peasant power level. I think it's a nice card. Which cube is it going into of yours? Your pyramid cube? No, it would fit there from the name. Um, <laughs> but I think for the for that for that cube, uh, the power level of this card is already too high. I think that will be will end up being a very low power level format. Yeah, that that was mainly a joke. Anyway, uh... <laughs> yeah. So I think it will just go in my base basic peasant cube and it would synergize also with the um proliferate theme that is in blue and green maybe maybe there will be some artifact synergies i don't know it maybe it's not really for the cube but i do like the card and i think i will test it out there uh, i remember playing with it back in um hour of devastation flashback earlier this year and i remember it being pretty nice there too so i think Good choice. Did you see a card that you uh, fell in love with or previously overlooked and want to add in one, into one of your cubes? Or maybe already added? So I think a good one for my um, limited as Garfield intended, my um, own peasant cube with only recent sets would be a Smoldering Werewolf, which was definitely a powerhouse in its own format. Uh, so it's two and two red mana. Uh, for a 3-2, it's a werewolf horror, and when it enters the battlefield, it uh, deals one damage to each of up to two target creatures, and then for four and two red mana, um, you can transform it into a 6-4, that when it attacks, it deals two damage to any target. Um, mm-hmm. yep. uh, this card, um, multiple times, I would say something like, oh no, my opponent has cast Lingering Souls. The only way I can get back in this game is if I draw the Smoldering Werewolf. And some of the time I didn't draw it, but once I actually did, which felt pretty pretty nice and lucky. And uh, yeah, the card yeah. is really, really sweet when you're able to get, I'm not going to call it a three for one with it, because usually the cards you're killing are not quite worth a card on their own, but um, it's really powerful. And then even if um, you don't kill anything with it, if you're able to flip it and start getting some value uh, attacking with the 6-4 side of it, I think that's pretty nice. It's an interesting option for high 
mana caused red cards. Like giving red an option to sink its mana, still staying true to the color identity and um, being a generally interesting effect is that that makes it a card to keep in mind for sure. Yeah, I think it's a nice one. Just the fact that you know you can have a four mana three two uh, still be good in this high of a um, high power level of an environment. I think it's pretty neat to see it there. But you did not add anything to your Star Wars cube that we will talk about next. Um, I might be adding Reckless Racer to that one. So a Reckless Racer, uh, two and a red, or three, it's a human pilot. Um, and whenever it becomes, it has first strike, and whenever it becomes tapped, um, you may discard a card, and if you do, draw a card. So you can rummage. Um, this was a card I already Thematically, it fits very well. Right, yeah. And that's actually a big part of um, Cube, as I will be mentioning in a second. Yeah, the subtype pilot definitely helps. There's no real synergy there, but in terms of uh, making it true to the theme. Right. Um, because I want a lot of my three drops to have three power or greater so they can crew um, the bigger vehicles. But I think this card is probably just good enough and there's enough flavor there that it deserves to be in the cube. Yeah. So the general idea of the cube is that. The aesthetic and idea behind the cards should reflect Star Wars universe in a way. Is it correct? Um, I would say my first idea when I um, wanted to come up with the Star Wars cube is I wanted to just create as many flavorful callbacks to the Star Wars universe as I could and make them powerful and viable. And so one of the places I actually started with that was um, the Tron lands. If you uh, have seen, for instance, Urza's Tower is probably um, the most obvious one. If you look at the Urza's Tower art from like 8th or 9th edition, it really looks like Tatooine. Like it looks a lot like Tatooine. Um, so I wanted to see if I could make like Tron into a cube archetype, which Turns out to be extremely difficult um, <laughs> for a couple of reasons. And then I started looking at, um, here's another one. This one um, I only found while I was doing some research um, for this cube. And I don't think almost anyone knows this card. It's called Brass Secretary. It's three mana for a 2-1 uh, artifact creature. And for two mana, you can sacrifice it and draw a card. Um, and the only purpose for this card would be to look like C-3PO. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it for sure does look like him. Yeah. But, um, I mean, even the flavor You can make it playable in your cube, but that would mean a very low power level. Right, for sure. It actually really saddens me because I think just with damage on the stack, this thing might have been good enough to make it into the cube. But anyway... Um, so that's pretty much how I started. I wanted to just take everything flavorful or, you know, that called back to the Star Wars universe. And then I realized that was impossible. <laughs> so I tried again and I started trying to make things viable um, by power level. And I was thinking, okay, you can have red, white dwarves and vehicles. And that's kind of like pod racing. And I don't know, what's like clones? What's or pilots of, of right. the 
Rebel Fleet. Yeah, exactly. Um, Paula can be Wedge Antilles or something, you know? And uh, I was thinking, okay, what can be clone or stormtroopers? And then it was like, okay, maybe I can use a mass uh, to be like armies. Um, and then I was thinking, actually, the is it symbol looks extremely similar to the uh, rebel symbol, uh, which I thought was really cool. And then I was thinking, oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. Yeah, uh, I was thinking the Orzov symbol, like almost bears a resemblance to the Empire symbol, uh, but that's a bit of a stretch. And so basically, I ended up in this world where green didn't have any role. Um, it didn't have anything to do with, uh, you know, representing either side. And then even as I moved on and I realized that the Demir Army's archetype was not going to work out. I still didn't think green really had a place. Um, and so I've never I've never designed a cube before where I've excluded only one color. And it's definitely an interesting experience. Um, but I think because my cube ended up being so much about artifact synergy when I realized that uh, Demir Armies wasn't going to work, um, there are not too many green cards that synergize with artifacts. So I think it's probably for the better that... Uh, I decided to exclude it. I think it would be interesting to play without any green in there. Though you probably could have found some weird-looking green creatures that resemble aliens from various Star Wars worlds. Yeah, one of the main um, flavorful that I originally hoped to do with green was have kind of like a Yoda magic card or like a Chewbacca magic card. Um, and I did actually end up going <laughs> with something a little different for Yoda uh, because each planeswalker in my cube is supposed to represent either um, a Jedi or a Sith, just some force sensitive character. Um, Yoda actually ended up being Duretti, uh ingenious iconoclast. So I would say uh, <laughs> Duretti might be a little uglier than Yoda, maybe a little um, more evil looking than Yoda, but uh, the power level with the artifact synergy cube is definitely there. And the red black color pair definitely needed the support. So. Yeah. So there were a few questions that I had with regard to your cube. And you already talked about the first one, which is obviously the exclusion of green. But I also noticed that the cube is only 288 cards. So what does that mean about how to play this cube? Because you need 360 to make a draft of eight players with a pack of 15. Right. So I'm going to try not to go full on into a rant here. But one of the things I've noticed after playing a lot of limited is that it doesn't really make sense to have 15 card packs, in my opinion. Because when you draft a 15 card pack, Right When you draft three of those, you're going to end up with 45 cards. Maybe 23 of them will make your deck. So then suddenly you have just under half the cards you drafted doing nothing, right? So I tried to come up with reasons that, you know, wizards had pack size be at 15. So for instance, um, it seems like back in War of the Spark, uh, they announced that they were going to be upping the power level of commons 
you had uh, Avnixilis' Cruelty as a common, but you also still had cards like Demolish printed at common. Um, and so for anyone who doesn't know, that's three and a red to destroy an artifact or a land. And a playable nowhere. <laughs> Not right. even on kitchen table magic. Exactly. And so the point is if it's not there for the casual players and it's not there for the competitive players, who is it there for? And I think the real they answer... Is destroy the environment. It's there to round up the pack, ultimately. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a better explanation. Right. Um, and so I started thinking, okay, well, if 15 isn't the right number, if you end up with almost twice as many cards as you need, what can you do? And that leads a lot of people to say, well, there's mana fixing and there are sideboard cards. Um, and you see those in a lot of the more powerful cubes, um, stuff like Vintage Cube, you see a ton of mana fixing there. Um, and I think that in a lot of those cubes, it makes sense. It makes sense to have, um, you know, those powerful ways to, you know, uh, have an impact on your pool without counting toward your 23 playables necessarily. Um, but then I was thinking when you have a lower powered cube, when you have a cube that cares a lot about two color pairs, um, doesn't care a lot about sideboard cards or changing the deck that much after sideboarding, it just becomes pretty uninteresting if you have like 45 playables and you're just cutting half of them, right? Um, and so that's that's ultimately what led me to try um, this idea of okay, let's let's try trimming the number of cards per pack uh, because suddenly with three twelve card packs, you know, you end up with thirty six cards, and that's I think a much more interesting draft when you have uh, a cube without a ton of mana fixing your sideboard cards because suddenly it becomes not only which colors should I be in, but can I get enough playables? Every pick matters more. There are no filler cards in a cube like Demolish, so, you know, might as well trim the size of the packs entirely. Um, and yeah, so as I kind of already alluded to, 288 cards, that's what happens when uh, you have three 12-card uh, packs uh, for each of the eight players. So it's right now just an experiment all theory, um, but we'll see how it works, and I'm excited to try it out. I am also very excited to try it out, but um, I will say something that um, I think could happen here. And the smaller pack size also makes train wrecks a little bit more likely. Like, a real train wreck draft in cube draft is very rare because of the big pack sizes and strong overall power level. but um, if you find yourself in the the wrong archetype in, in pack one, just because maybe um, like a certain color certain color combinations were opened more or something like that, because the packs are not really seeded, I think it could happen that somebody really train wrecks completely. And yeah. I don't think it will happen, and I think just cutting to twelve is. Uh, not enough to to do this, but when you go lower and lower in the number of cards you give to people, at some point this will become a real possibility. Yeah, 
I think you're totally right. Um, and by no means am I claiming that 12 is the right number. I think that there probably is a right number somewhere out there. Um, it might be that 12 is too low. It might be that 12 is too high. Uh, but frankly, I'm just excited to experiment. I'm <laughs> excited to use crude old trial and error to see, you know, where is the breaking point where it's, you know, challenging to pick up uh, enough playables to have a cohesive deck, um, but not so challenging where, you know, two players get train wrecked on average every draft. <laughs> <laughs> it would not be the best outcome, but I mean, could also be <laughs> funny for once at least. <laughs> right. You're listening to the ramblings of your of your players. Yeah, and I think um, just because my cube, like people aren't used to drafting artifact synergy cubes on Magic Online. Um, like for instance, you know they might not know that Oriok Salvagers, a card that returns one mana artifacts, is something I would consider like first pickable. Or they might not know that you know somewhere in there I've hidden a three card infinite combo. Um, so I'm expecting people to go into it with a little less knowledge, um, less, I guess, experience than they would with a cube like Vintage Cube or Legacy Cube, which, for instance, is going to be coming back for two weeks uh, very shortly. Um, so I guess this might not be the best place to test that lower pack size, but regardless, um, let's see how it goes. Yeah, let's see how it goes. And I mean, you need to find the flavorful cards for this type of cube. But I also noticed that with only four colors, there now will be six color combinations, six guilds available. What do you expect? Like, what do you think people will do? Will there be four people that have their own two-color deck and uh, then four people who share two-color combinations? Or what do you, what do you expect to happen? I think that's closer to what I expect than um, the alternative. There are no real monocolor payoffs, and I thought long and hard about um, putting a multicolor deck, and by multicolor I mean three or more colors, uh, into the cube. I really wanted to use a card called Brea Ethereum Shaper. Um, so it's one mana of each color other than green. It's a legendary artifact creature. It's a human. Uh, it says when it enters the battlefield, um, make two 1-1 one, one blue Thopter tokens with flying. And then uh, if you pay two mana and sacrifice two artifacts, it can deal three damage to target player, uh, can give target creature minus four, minus four, or it can gain you five life, and it's a 4-4. Four, four. So the card is excellent. It's every color that I want in the cube. There's a ton of synergy, but the problem is I was looking at all the other multicolored cards, uh, whether it's those cards with sunburst or you know esper cards and there just aren't enough three plus colored cards that care about artifacts other than in that esper shard that white blue black color pairing so yeah um i figure you know if um if wizards can get away with designing uh sets that pretty much introduce five different decks in the gilded sets, you know, something like Guilds of Ravnica or yeah. Ravnica Allegiance, and I can probably get away with designing a cube with six major archetypes, especially because uh, I find that the five 
archetype um, cubes, or I'm sorry, sets get pretty stale when you draft them over and over. But we're not going to be drafting this over and over. It'll be, you know, maybe one... we will. Maybe everybody will love it. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, you know, that's a that's a different problem. I can worry about that later. <laughs> it's a good problem. It would be a good problem. It would be an excellent problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. My point is, I think um, six archetypes should be enough at least this first run yeah so mm -hmm. we should for sure talk about uh, how this draft went next time we meet and if uh, there were any nice lessons learned um and with that uh i think it's pretty uh easy to come to our next big section which is about theoretical cube design um and we want to talk to you about meeting expectations and knowing your players And I think we can just start with, with this cube that we now plan to draft with our group of people um, who we don't know in person um, since we will be playing on Magic Online, drafting on a website. And yeah, what do you think will be the expectation of the people when they hear Star Wars Cube? Um, I think the first thing I would expect upon hearing Star Wars Cube, and it's hard for me to be unbiased um, because I designed it, uh, but I think a lot of people are looking for flavorful inclusions. Um, I think more than one person is said, oh no, do I need to go rewatch the movies before I play it? Like, am I not going <laughs> to understand? Um, All of them. Right. And uh, I think... I think when you give um, a cube you know, title of an iconic movie franchise, people expect to see stuff from the movies. And I'm just, I guess I'm hoping that um, people will be able to make the same uh, stretched connections from the cards to the screen that I was able to. Yeah, so when when I heard it, I was thinking about the Weatherlight at first because just the whole Weatherlight saga was designed as a, or was written as a bit of an equivalent to um yeah sci science fiction um movies with a fixed crew where every crew member had a storytelling um storytelling role that has equivalence in science fiction and uh yeah there are some cards of that in there i i had a quick look But I feel like it's none of the really old ones, or am I overlooking something here? Yeah, so I, when I was doing research, um, I realized that the Weatherlight does do a really good job of representing the Millennium Falcon. And I was thinking about the different ways I could support that. And I was looking at some of the old cards. Um, I was thinking about uh, cards that could represent other um other ships too i think predator flagship might be one of the names yes and i was looking at the old cards and i was thinking it, maybe gerard can be han solo or something exactly. like that. that's one of the first names i came to but he's not right. here. well he is and he isn't i don't have the original version i don't have the um three and two white mana version but i do yeah. have um, Gerard Weatherlight Hero, which is actually a card, I think, from a Commander product. Um, oh, I didn't know that one. Didn't... Yeah, so 
I don't have I don't have the um, original, but I have one that I think is more suited to the red white vehicle archetype, and I think one and that stronger. is <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it I might not have used most nostalgic cards to try to make that connection, but mm-hmm. uh, and for instance, I don't have um, the first weatherlight magic card, but I do have the weatherlight vehicle from Dominaria. Um, yeah. I also have Joira um, as Leia, the um, blue-red version of Joira, <laughs> if I can <laughs> pronounce that. I think I can say I might not have used, again, the oldest cards to make the connection, but I do I do have that uh, other light uh, theme there to support um, that connection that you made. Yeah. So I think at least upon opening the pack, people will pretty much immediately get that it is an artifact-centered cube. Like, you can't not see that when you look at the cards. But won't people be very surprised to not find green? Um, so, that's a good question. I'm probably going to tell everyone in advance, hey, there are no green cards. <laughs> I know. I think uh, that would be better. But it would also yeah. be interesting to just listen during the draft, or maybe look in chat, somebody writing, wow, green is so cut. <laughs> yeah, that'd be hilarious, right? They think it that the yes. first pack is, you know, it's not like a Magic Online pack because it's from draft.info, and, you know, yeah. maybe it's not that crazy that there are no green cards there, but in every single pack for the rest of the draft, you know, <laughs> okay. people would probably green. get it. Uh, yeah. Um, one of my friends, um, his favorite color is green. One of his favorite things to do is play, uh, you know, four mana four fours. So, you know, the first person I told was him. I was like, hey, Jackson, there's no green in this cube. I got to let you know now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, he, I think he's come to terms with that. I think he is able to cope. Um, yeah. But that brings us to like why I, chose this topic together with you. And it's because I re-listened to an old podcast by Mark Rosewater. And um, he talks about that, um, and I now quote him here, that um, resonance and how you want to do what the audience expects uh, up to a certain point. There's a sense of comfort. Or maybe I want to rephrase that, or I'll say that again. Um, yeah, so Maro had a podcast about meeting expectations. He said that um, you want to meet expectations to a point because there's a sense of comfort and that will be nice for people. But only up to a point because uh, you need to keep things exciting and fresh. And if everybody expects something and exactly this thing will happen, it might get dull very quickly. So with your cube, like people will uh, expect the vehicles. Maybe they will expect artifacts as they fit the futuristic theme. But I think one of the biggest surprises is that everything works with artifacts. Yeah, I would say that is a pretty big surprise. Um, It's not just about artifacts energy. It's not just about... Uh, making things like as powerful as possible, um, having to do with artifacts because otherwise, 
know, I'd probably have something like skull clamp in there. And <laughs> um, it's, it's more about trying to create the parts of the universe um, that I think are the nice um, like callbacks in magic form and then trying to say, okay, I have the red, white, like vehicles piece of the puzzle. Now I have to make every other color somehow work with either red or white. How am I going to do that? Um, yeah. And so yeah, that's pretty much how it worked for me. Uh, it was all about creating types that hopefully will be cohesive enough. Um, and yeah, again, cutting cards. Yeah, here's another one for you. Um, Rilla Shaman. So one of the uh, first printings of uh, this card, I think, from Alliances. It's a one-mana 1-1 one, one that can destroy a non-creature artifact with converted mana cost X if you pay twice X plus one mana to do it. Um, the Mox Mox and, Mox. Right, and I can say, you know, oh, this kind of looks like uh, Chewbacca, but at the end of the day, I ended up deciding against a card like this for the same reason I decided against Brass Secretary, the card that looks like C-3PO, and that's because... Um, you know, I wanted functionality to come first and flavor to come second. So you don't think the card that destroys artifacts over and over again is good enough for the all artifacts cube? It's funny you say that because, you know, when you frame it like that, it sounds like, of course, it would be good enough. Um, but with this card in particular, like a lot of the best artifacts um, are either artifact creatures or cards like vehicles which can turn into creatures um and it's hard to get a lot of value i think out of a card like this um because for instance say you're destroying a one mana artifact well i don't know maybe half of the one mana artifacts already draw you a card when they go to the graveyard so does that really sound sure, like you know, the best way to use your mana there's there's a bunch of uh, tokens though and it eats those nicely Normally they are yeah. converted monocles zero. Right. Um, but the tokens are all creatures too, and the gorilla shaman only ah, destroys them. Creature. Well then right. I think you are right, then it's probably not good enough. Yeah, but I if it did say just artifact, if the word non-creature wasn't there, I think I'd be with you. I think it would be in here. Yeah, but then I'm happy it's not here because I would probably pick it highly and then be very disappointed. So um, you, I mean, you have to meet expectations in that way. Like, you don't want to mislead people. And that is, like, something that every halfway decent cube designer says, that you don't want to forcefully mislead people, hint at synergies that will not be there, or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and, but one thing I now want to come to with, with with the expectations is um, what do you expect of our playgroup? Do you think somebody will really want to draft an aggressive deck and is that there? Will, will that be available? So I think that uh, there will be at least one or two people who are interested in drafting aggressive decks um, and I expect red white to be a little more highly coveted than red black 
so for instance, say maybe two people end up in red, white, only one person ends up in red, black. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if someone tries to make a multi, uh, multicolor theme work, uh, which you know, unfortunately, you're not really going to see the support or the incentives for that, but maybe they're thinking, okay, if I take a bunch of artifacts which I can sacrifice for colorless mana or colored mana, then you know that can work even if I don't end up in that many colors. And I think um, you know if they do have some kind of failsafe like that, then they should be all right. Um, and also, there just isn't that much mana fixing. I think I have like maybe two sets of duels in there. So I think people will be able to figure out that uh, it's all about two color pairs and. Um, well, you have you have like um, in the land department. I don't know, should be like twenty three or so, and then you have the four signets, uh, not six signets. So it's like roughly ten percent of the cube is fixing. So that's I think already better or more than was in the master's cube, and there's no variance in how much we will see. So I think it will still play nicely, but not make people go all over the place. Or at least I hope so. Yeah, that leads me to another thing that um, with managing expectations and why I went back to this podcast by Maro. Um, mm. It's that I heard people uh, complain a bit about Amaz's cube in terms of the availability of mana fixing. And I think that a lot of people that only draft cubes um, mm expect mana fixing to be there because in the normal magic online cubes like the legacy cube the modern cube and the the vintage cube as you said earlier there's a lot of fixing available and it allows for basically everything from mono color to five color to have pretty consistent mana you still need to devote the picks but generally it is there and in the mass cube there is fixing but Especially in the contrast with a lot of multicolor cards, there's not that much fixing. And the multicolor cards make you expect fixing, but then in the end, there is not so much of it because of, also of the size of the cube and the types of fixing you have available if you don't want to break singleton um, right. for a peasant cube. Yeah. So I think a lot of the people that complained did not only complain because there was not enough fixing, because I think that's the point you can argue about if it's enough or not. But people certainly expected more fixing. Yeah. And just going off of that, I remember on a few different points, um, I would see a 15th pick three color card. Um, and I was thinking, I mean, looks like nobody was able to go in that direction because cards generally are pretty powerful. So if you have something like that in there, chances are if someone's in that color combination, they'll want it. Um, and yeah, I think that peasant restriction, it really is, uh, it takes a big toll on the mana base if you have really uh, dense, I guess, multicolor environment. Um, and I guess the easiest solution that I can come up with is the peasant restriction maybe only applies to the non-land cards. So then for lands, you're, uh, you're able to have uh, not only more fixing, but better fixing. I remember I was trying to draft, it was a red-white deck yeah. um, the other day, and I kept looking at the red-white duels, 
and saying, I don't want this card. It comes into play tapped. <laughs> yes. That is one of the main problems with aggressive decks in uh, that are not monocolored or almost monocolored right. in a peasant cube. And I think that is something you can work with if you really shape the environment around it. But that's a lot of work and it might or might not work and might need a lot of iterations. Yeah. But like when you see a nice multicolored aggro card, like even in one of the higher powered formats, it's often harder or risky to play more than one color in your aggressive deck. Yeah, so in my opinion, there are two main reasons to build a peasant cube. The first one, of course, is budget. So yeah, you don't have any of the super popular rares and mythics that you see uh, so often in constructed. But the second main reason uh, is just power level and personal preference. If you don't want to put any crazy bombs into your cube, um, then you might build a peasant cube. But here's the deal. There's no such thing as a crazy bomb, except for maybe something like Dark Depths or whatever, as a land, right? So if you just have fixing um, in the higher rarity echelons, I don't think that um, it's going to greatly impact anything in your cube except for the price. Um, so Well, and it, a little bit about it is also aesthetic. I want to say that like I think like a, a peasant cube with rare lands Lacks a little yeah, bit of the aesthetic. That's valid. It's not as pure. No, but you can certainly uh, just abandon this this aesthetic part. Yeah, so then on another hand, what I also thought about is when people draft this cube, the power level of the cards was relatively high. And the power level of the lands is lower. And people then expect to see the lands late. But some people just always draft all the lands. So I think that what happened was that there was an artificial scarcity because some people evaluated this, this, this type of fixing against another card that was like in a vacuum more powerful and then shipped it on. And somebody who really wanted to play the five-color Honten deck snatched it up. So I think this was... Like you have to evaluate the fixing card as a player against the fixing that is available and whether you need that effect right. or not. But I don't know if you can expect that from such a big crowd as just the general public on Magic the Gathering Online or maybe even in our smaller playgroup because well, there's a flux in players and we don't know them all personally and they probably won't listen to <laughs> all of our rambling about this. So. You are a bit tricking your players, maybe there. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good mind. point. I've definitely seen more than one player like second pick a Triland uh, in a Maz's cube, and I don't know. I mean, Trilands are among the better lands in the cube, but it's just not—I don't know—not something that I uh, think is very well supported. I guess. I first picked Trilands and felt good about yeah, it. I, I mean, know. again, they are among the better ones, but like you were saying, with the rest of the fixing, um, it's just not nearly as good. So, you know, you might end up with a couple Trilands and still maybe you're unable to go uh, as many colors as you'd like to. Yeah, and then there's also like the managing the expectations also something 
that uh, I noticed with um, the Carte Cube. Like some people in our playgroup or people that I talked to uh, expected it to be different from other Magic Online cubes, but then were a bit disappointed when uh, like there was a lot of aggressive decks and a lot of planeswalkers. Um, I don't really know what they expected, but they expected something else. I think they expected to be playing a bit more dirtily, what was now delivered with Amaz's cube, but yeah, I don't. It was clearly communicated actually from Carlty Cube that it is a very spike cube, as 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 he called it. But I don't know. Some people still went in with another expectation, and there was less space for dirtling um, than even in Vintage Cube, I would say, even though the power level was a little bit lower when you look at the raw cards. Yeah, I think that maybe one way to adjust that expectation, I don't think that um, John Terrell would ever do this necessarily, but simply renaming the cube, um, if you called it like Cultic Cube, then you know my first thought is, okay, Rakdos, and my second thought is, okay, maybe, maybe we're not just going to see only red and black as a cube, but uh, it's probably going to be pretty different. There are going to be uh, maybe some cards from like to do with the Eldritch Moon or, you know, some kind of uh, eerie. Right, exactly. Um, but then, yeah, I think, okay, this is Spike Cube. Suddenly everybody is going to, well, almost everyone is going to understand what yeah. it means to be a spike, what it means to play like a spike. Um, and then, yeah, nobody's expectations really are going maybe. to um, be betrayed. Hearing Spike Cube also makes maybe people be a bit afraid to even jump in. But um, I think that in a way the cube helped players out and made it not so much of a cutthroat environment by having very clear matchup identifications. And I think that's something that a lot of people especially people that come over from the constructed side of Magic, have some trouble with in normal draft environments. Because it's not that clear-cut whether you are the aggro deck or the mid-range or the control deck. And you need to adjust the way you play very quickly and re-evaluate that, re that turn by turn. But in the environment that the spike cube set it is often more clear so it, i think it will will help people in in this environment it, i think it's i think it's one of the beauties of the of the cube but um maybe also something that leads to it not being replayable a hundred thousand times i think i would agree with everything you said there yeah so Let's just, um, as a last part of this section, make a guess about what the people that we often cube with like so that they can shout at us later and uh, tell us what they actually like. Like, not about a specific person, but um, what, what do you think people like and what do you think people don't like? Um, I think it's pretty fair to say there are some people who like winning and who would rather win than 
know, pretty much do anything else. Um, I think maybe another thing that a lot of people like is to draw cards. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's one of the best feelings in Magic, too, unless um, and maybe you're able to do both, but not always. Um, I think another thing people really like is really controlling environments, which kind of complements the, um, the card draw. But whenever you have your opponent in a situation where they just can't do anything, I think that feels pretty good. <laughs> um, what I think is that people really like cute ways to win. For example, I was specifically requested to to put the um, Lab Maniac into my person cube. And I think that's a cute way to win. Um, and other, like, uh, for example, I believe that if somebody finds the three-card win combo in your cube, people will love that. I didn't even realize Lab Maniac was printed as an uncommon. But yeah, I'm, I'm hoping um, and... I'm still debating whether or not to just tell people what it is, but I I don't think that would make it as fun. If no, I no, I don't think just... it would. Maybe after the first draft, or maybe everybody will see because you will smash it with smash us with it. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think people really like easy things. They like stuff like door to nothingness. You know, they like fun and silly and uh, I guess unique ways of playing Magic. Yeah, and what I think they really don't like, which I think we talked about it earlier, is if an archetype seems to just not work in an environment. And that is really something I need to get a grip on with, with my cube. There are the two, two archetypes, two green archetypes with uh, green-white, which is auras right now, and green-blue, which is some kind of proliferate token theme doesn't quite seem to work yet um, and I will have to keep an eye on that because I think that caused quite a bit of frustration before and uh, yeah. I remember almost getting run over by uh, the green-white aura archetype in your cube um, and yeah. But that was I, a very I would... loose interpretation of the archetype that you played against. I remember that. I remember watching it and um, they also just jammed Pelaka Worm which is just a great card. Yeah, that's fair. Some Eldrazi too, if I remember yes. correctly. Um, yeah, I think it's really extremely difficult to balance archetypes. Like, it's one thing to make an archetype; it's another thing to support an archetype. But to make sure that they're going to be comparable in power level, you know, at that point, it feels like you need to start scribbling words onto the cards themselves. Like, you have to be the one at R and D, and not just the, you know long-time Magic fan compiling yeah. some of your favorite cards. Well, I think it could also just mean cutting good cards from other archetypes, but that is so hard to do. Like, reducing the power level of your cube is one of the hardest things you can ever do, I think. And I'm not even sure if people will like it when that happens. We will see. I would say right next to that, maybe the hardest thing that I've had to do is take an idea that I feel like is great or at least really good and just say, sorry, <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I guess on a smaller scale, that's what it is to reduce the power level of an archetype. Yeah, because with some archetypes, if you want to keep them, it's impossible to up the power level anymore. Yeah, with that, I would 
go on to our very final part of the show, which is inviting you again to our Discord channel. Anyone listening, um, if you want, feel free to join the Discord. Feel free to participate in any of our drafts, including uh, the one this coming weekend. And yeah, even if you can't or don't want to make that one, uh, there will be more in the future. It will be nice to see you. Always happy to see some new faces and names. If you have any thoughts about what we talked about, maybe contact us on our Discord or write some YouTube comments. We will look into that and uh, see you next time. Happy cubing. Bye.